listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to episode 74 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. Today, we will talk about what to expect at work when you're expecting, which is not much, apparently, if you work at Walmart or other low-wage employers. We'll talk to Melissa Josephs of Women Employed and Walmart worker Latavia Johnson. But first, the news. Usually, tax day, April 15th, is a day of dread for working people, but this year, on 415, the Fight 415 is planning to escalate its low-wage worker protest movement, demanding $15 an hour and the right to form a union. They have scheduled actions for about 200 cities nationwide, featuring marches, rallies, and strikes. And although the movement began with fast food workers, the call for $15 an hour has now expanded to include home health aides, adjunct professors, and other low-wage workers. And they're also branching out in solidarity with other movements, including Moral Mondays, uh, Black Lives Matter, and they're partnering with unions and advocacy groups ranging from the International Union of Food Workers to the NAACP. They're also planning other actions in about 40 countries on six continents, and they estimate about 60,000 protesters will turn out for these actions. Um, In other countries um, where organized labor is stronger, you actually see... uh, Unions mobilizing against McDonald's, for instance, in Brazil, uh, the uh, organized labor movement is charging McDonald's with uh, unfair business practices and unsanitary working conditions. And we've also seen legal action here in the U.S. with uh, the National Labor Relations Board certifying claims of various misconduct on the part of McDonald's, um, as well as various health and safety violations, such as you know getting scalded with kitchen grease, uh, along with you know, the old chestnuts like racial discrimination. It remains to be seen whether the workers will achieve their $15 goal, but the broader mission is already being served in a way. They're starting a global conversation about equity for low-wage workers across the board and solidarity across sectors. For the last few weeks, the Silicon Valley elite has been transfixed by a sex discrimination case filed by Ellen Pau, who was a former employee of Kleiner Perkins, one of Silicon Valley's biggest and most famous venture capital firms. Venture capital is, of course, the people who essentially fund all these fancy startups that you hear about and possibly use to do things like order a cab, tweet at people, etc., etc. Pow's sex discrimination case was the highest profile one to come out of the tech industry, which is constantly being taken to task for its unequal treatment of women. Powell lost her suit. The jury found for Kleiner Perkins on all counts, including that she was finding that she was not retaliated against when she was fired after she filed the lawsuit. But there's been a lot of conversation since about whether or not Powell won or lost. This lawsuit has broken open the sort of floodgates on sex discrimination in Silicon Valley. Of course, we are not going to bring about equality in the workforce, one very wealthy venture capitalist at a time. It's worth noting that, of course, when in Dukes versus Walmart, the famous sex discrimination class action lawsuit at Walmart, when the Supreme Court found that the Walmart women were not allowed to have a class action, essentially it made it much harder to win lawsuits like this because a jury doesn't have to find that there's overall sexism in the tech industry or even overall sexism at Kleiner Perkins. The fancy lawyers for the venture capital firm 
simply have to be able to create some reasonable doubt that perhaps this particular woman didn't in fact deserve to be made partner and that's why she was not promoted and ultimately fired. So once again, we, we see, first of all, that collective action is necessary and second of all, the way that the Supreme Court continues to gut workers' rights. Um, but there are more cases being filed against miscellaneous tech companies, so this will probably not be the last we hear about big-name lawsuits for sex discrimination in the tech industry. And for many years, uh, New Yorkers have been shut out of job opportunities systematically due to a bad credit score or bad credit report. And this tends to create a vicious cycle of poverty and economic marginalization for some of the most vulnerable workers in the city. New Yorkers have recently banded together to take a stand, a group called the NYC Coalition to Stop Credit Checks and Employment um, has actually uh, pushed forward legislation on the city level for a ban on employers using um, credit reports and credit scores to universally screen out job applicants. And uh, they say that, you know, a simple measure like this would basically level the playing field. It would prevent uh, employers from unfairly using, uh, you know, their prejudiced views of people's bad credit scores, which, as we know, since the Great Recession, that having a bad credit report uh, is not only exceedingly common, but really doesn't say anything about your individual trustworthiness or your ability to perform labor. But uh, the New York Times recently reported that the legislation has uh, hit some bumps along the road. Um, there is massive pressure on Mayor Bill de Blasio to essentially gut uh, the bill by adding in all these exemptions, uh, you know, for uh, industries such as uh, finance and car dealerships because, you know, they have such an impeccable reputation for integrity and trustworthiness that, of course, they need to check every single job applicant's credit report. According to Demos, poor credit is, quote, common associated with a lack of health coverage and medical debt, as well as with household employment. So not exactly a reflection on your ability or willingness to pay back a loan, but rather a reflection of your economic circumstances. Overall, um, they report that one out of 10 unemployed workers have reported that credit checks have kept them out of a job. And the impact has been disproportionate on black workers who are facing multiple layers of disadvantage on the job market in the first place. Now, if the mayor continues to to face pressure to cave, as he did on his living wage ordinance, which was also, um, you know, uh, in the end, festooned with various exemptions, that will be a disappointment to the advocacy community. But, um, you know, in the wake of the Great Recession, uh, more and more people are feeling the heat from a bad credit report, and more and more people are agreeing that it should not be a blank check for employers to mass discriminate against people. Also right here in New York, we are at the, well, unfortunately, at the end of the now regular massive budget fight with Andrew Cuomo. Um, of particular notice in this year's budget fight was a move by Andrew Cuomo to make teacher evaluations that are based on high-stakes standardized tests an even bigger part of a teacher's rating and basically make it even easier to fire teachers, make it harder for them to get tenure in the first place, um, and make testing an even bigger part of the already large part that it takes up of students' lives at school. This sparked massive protests across the state. The statewide federation of teachers' unions opposed it. Parents, students, teachers held joint protests. And in the end, the uh, Cuomo didn't get everything he wanted. 
He got close to everything he wanted. He did not manage to get 50% of a teacher's rating tied to student test scores, but those details will be left to the state education department, which, well, guess who they work for. New teachers will have to wait four years before they're eligible for tenure, rather than three, and they must receive three ratings of effective or highly effective. They can be fired with two consecutive ratings of ineffective, and essentially it makes it more difficult for teachers to achieve the highest rating and mandates low ratings in certain circumstances. So, as we've seen and discussed many times on this podcast, in the face of a growing movement to oppose standardized testing, Cuomo is doubling down. We wonder who is encouraging him to go this way. Also of note in the New York State budget, just for funsies, um, the budget deal did not include the increase in the minimum wage that you may remember Andrew Cuomo promised when he got the endorsement of the Working Families Party and several major state unions, but it did in fact include a tax break for luxury yachts and private planes. So, as always, we see who runs New York. Well, last week, the Supreme Court handed down some important news for uh, pregnant workers, and it was not, it's a boy or it's a girl. It's actually, um, your employer no longer can have such an easy time discriminating against you at work. Um, A woman named Peggy Young sued UPS for violating the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which is um, a law that was passed back in the 70s that was supposed to protect pregnant women at work from uh, discrimination and allow them to obtain reasonable accommodations so that they can reduce some of the physical strain and the stress uh, that they need to be protected from while they're pregnant. So um, basically, it was sort of looking at the language of the act and uh, trying to parse through a loophole that UPS tried to uh, use in order to get out of um, their obligation to treat pregnancy the way they would treat um, any other temporary disability at work uh, for other workers who are not pregnant but are similarly impaired in their ability to work. So uh, it turned out that Peggy Young prevailed, but that still leaves open the question of how we protect pregnant workers going forward. And we're going to talk a little bit today about moves on the legislative front and also just grassroots advocacy around um, advancing protections for pregnant workers and also raising awareness of uh, the particular needs of pregnant workers at work and why it's an important feminist issue. We're going to talk first with Melissa Joseph. She is with Women Employed. That's an advocacy group in Illinois. And here she is talking about a new law that was passed on the state level. Illinois is one of several states that has passed a, a law that mandates special protections for pregnant workers above and beyond what the Pregnancy Discrimination Act offers. So here she is talking about that new Illinois law. Yes, they're all very similar in that they're trying to provide a standalone protection for pregnant women, which, you know, hasn't happened before, right? Like there's a Pregnancy Discrimination Act, but all that said is you can't discriminate. There's no affirmative duty to do anything. But now these reasonable accommodation laws are saying, if a woman is working and needs a reasonable accommodation in order to keep working, if she wants to keep working, then you, the employer has to provide it unless the employer thinks it's an undue hardship. So in that way, it's similar language to the, the Americans with Disability Act where you ask for something, you should get it unless the employer says undue hardship. The other thing is this law would cover employers with one or more employees. 
and that's not always the same. You know, there are a lot of laws that say you have to have 15 or more, 50 or more. Illinois, what this is doing in Illinois is amending the Illinois Human Rights Act, our state law, you know, like, like Title VII, you know, it's anti-discrimination. And in that law, it mostly covers employers with 15 or more employees, except for disability and sexual harassment, and now pregnancy reasonable accommodation, you only need one or more employee. And I will say, speaking of sexual harassment, this is sort of similar to that in that there used to just be protected class sex discrimination, but sexual harassment was developed, you know, like um, into a, a problem or, you know, that needed protection in and of itself, similar to this. You know, you'd think pregnancy um, would be covered under sex discrimination, but it's not because only women get pregnant. So legally, when the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was passed, it was covered more like as a disability, you know, and while pregnancy is not a disability, and it's the way it was covered, you know, when people would bring claims is, you know, did the employer treat you, you know, similarly, you know, um, in, in your ability or, or not ability, inability to work the way they treated other people? Well, when you compare a pregnant woman to someone else, it has to be, it's just, it's too hard to find similar situations for, you know, to a non-pregnant worker, you know, who have, um, you know, they're going into like, you know, labor or preterm contraction or something like that. I mean, a lot of this stuff only happens to pregnant women. So this is just, a, so this law is finally giving pregnancy uh, a standalone protection for this, you know, this reasonable accommodation. Okay. So you're saying that a pregnancy could not be treated like a disability because the situa it's hard to find like a comparable situation? Well, I guess no, a couple reasons why I'm not treating or it, the law isn't treating it that way. First of all, under the ADA, a disability is something you have, it's a permanent thing and pregnancy is not permanent. So even if you, if you have a temporary disability, I mean, right there, it's not going to be covered because it's temporary and ADA covers people with permanent. And so the law has not been treating pregnancy as a disability. So it really needs to stand alone. And the thing about this is even if you're pregnant for nine months, which is certainly not permanent, a lot of times you only need the reasonable accommodation for a, a period of time. It could, you could need it for a month or a few months. So it really needs its own category because it's, it's not like, you know, other, other disabilities that you know, don't go away. By creating this, like, extra set of mandates for the employer to accommodate, that also leaves room for like a spectrum of accommodations, right? Because it could range, I mean, it seems like it could range from anything from like totally taking time off to, you know, getting a stool or something, right? And so um, is the idea also that like no one should be, no one should be forced to work in a way that is uncomfortable and no one should be forced to get off, to be, take off work when they don't need to. That is exactly right. I think one of the reasons this was coming up, the, the need for this is so many women, you know, most women are going to get pregnant and most women who get pregnant while they're working want to keep working. They don't want to stay home. If they do stay home, it's for like time. Once they give birth, they want to stay home, bond with the baby, come back to work. You know, a lot of people, you know, you need the, they need the salary. So, they didn't like it, you know, when they were pregnant and they wanted to keep working and employers would say, no, uh, we're not going to keep you on the job. We're not going to accommodate you. Go home. You know, sometimes they're fired if they can't do the job without a reasonable accommodation. Or sometimes they're told, take the leave now, whether it's an unpaid leave, which a lot of people can't afford to take, or even if it's the paid leave, you know, well, I don't want to take the paid leave now. You know, I want to use it when I actually need to. <clears throat> so 
know, a lot of people want to keep working. I mean, sometimes the reasonable accommodation might be not working, but I think more often it might just be being allowed to drink water or carry a water bottle on the job or be allowed to sit or be allowed to lift less if lifting is part of your job. And you're right, there's, you know, in the law we have a lot of examples of reasonable accommodations, but it's not an exclusive list, right? It's just, you know, can include, but, you know, it's, it's not limited to the ones that are listed there. I mean, if this were purely about letting women take time off, that could conceivably be sort of covered under the FMLA, wouldn't it? Okay, so the thing about the FMLA, um, it only covers employers with 50 or more employees, 5-0 or more. So there are a lot of people who wouldn't be covered by this. And again, that's unpaid leave. So yeah, if it was just about people wanting to take time off, but but again, I think I think for the most part, this was we felt needed this law because women didn't want to take the time off. They mm-hmm. just wanted an accommodation. They wanted to keep working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, and, and like you said, if they take FMLA, it's unpaid. You know, how many, not a lot of people can afford to take that. So if they feel forced to take an unpaid leave, we'd like to limit that unpaid leave for as, you know, as little time as is possible. And if they don't want to take the leave, why should they be forced to take an unpaid leave? Instead, they want to keep working, you know, get paid. And that was Melissa Josephs of Women Employed. Uh, I talked to Latavia Johnson. She's a Walmart worker, also in Illinois. And uh, although the law should have been protecting her, it um, ended up sort of not working out where she was at Walmart. And she's talking here about how she ended up getting a really hard time from her supervisor uh, when she got pregnant and tried to go to work. And was actually, for a time, uh, due to the confusion of the supervisor, actually barred from working, even though she was still sort of getting called in uh, for you know to work on her on-call schedule. So. Uh, she, here she is talking about that confusion and the uh, anguish that it caused her uh, while she was expecting. Okay. I found out I was pregnant probably around the time of my birthday. My birthday is July 17th. And they asked me to go ahead and do uh, freight. And freight is extremely heavy because I worked in, de- uh, in a bakery and also daily. So... When you're listing that, it's frozen foods, and frozen foods are heavier than, you know, regular. You're putting it back in before it, you know, freezes. And they wanted me to put out freight. And I told them I couldn't lift over 25 pounds, and she told me that I have to have a doctor's statement letting her know why I couldn't lift over that weight. So I went ahead and told her that I'll bring one in when I go on lunch. And when I did so, and I had my doctor fax it in, she pulled me after I had got done, um, you know, finishing up all the orders. She had uh, pulled me to the back and basically told me that I had to leave because I couldn't lift the requirement of weight. She had read it out, but she really didn't read the paper that they gave them correctly to me. And... When I got home and I asked my doctor to send me a copy of it also, and, you know, she read it to me and kind of told me, you know, what it meant. And I was like, well, this is, you know, she kind of skipped over some of the things that she had read, and it's it's a state law, and I was kind of confused why I still had to leave. And so she told me I couldn't come back until I had got my restriction lifted. But how can you get a restriction lifted when it's a state law 
it's not like I can, you know, turn around and tell the state, you know, I need you to lift this law for me. It's not like my doctor told me it was a restriction. It's the law that's telling me, you know, you shouldn't lift over 25 pounds while you're pregnant. Because I wouldn't want anything to happen to my child also. So after this, I've been on leave for, I was on leave for three months. And I was like, you know, I kept calling, kept calling. It was like, well, can you, you know, put me somewhere else that I don't have to do a lot of lifting? And they kept telling me that they, you know, couldn't do that because I didn't get injured at work or this didn't happen at work. So I'm, I'm like, well, it's a state law. What's the problem? And they just kept, you know, saying that, oh, no, we can't move you to another area because, you know, that's the reason and that's how we operate and everything. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, I guess, you know, that's how it's supposed to be because I really didn't know. Then I once I talked to um, Gigi and finally got an understanding of, you know, what they were doing to me and it was wrong and everything. Then I was like, okay, now I got to take action. And she helped me do that. So, I mean, it was hard at the time not being able to pay bills and not being able to have, you know, keep up with my finances. Right now, like I said, I live with my mom, but still I pay, you know, pay rent and everything else. And it was kind of hard for her to do everything on her own because she's not used to, you know, doing everything by herself because she's used to having me, you know, bring in some type of income. But after that, they had tried to, after I came to them again about it and I had uh, Gigi on the phone and she kind of talked to them and, you know, let them kind of have a piece of her mind. (laughs) And they kind of understood where we were coming from. But she, they turned around and they told me, well, we can put you in your department, but you can't lift anything. You know, they kind of gave me three to four hours a day. I really didn't get many hours, and I only worked, like, a few days. And I was kind of, like, not making enough money to, you know, take care of myself or do anything. I mean, what is a, a, a hundred-something dollars? There's not enough to survive on. And it's like, that was basically my check every two weeks. And I'm like, you know, this I can't survive on this. And it was basically, she was, she was like, well, we can't do too much with you because we don't want you lifting anything heavy. And I'm like, why, why are you guys, you know, it's, that's 20, that's not 25 pounds. You know, I can slice, if I was in the deli, I can slice meat. They ain't tell me I couldn't slice meat because if I had cut my hand, it could give me an infection. I was like, are you guys kidding me right now? Like, are you guys trying to, you know, be funny or anything? So I was like, well, what else can I do? Can I work in the bakery still? And she was like, no, because you can't lift over a certain amount, and you'll kind of just be in a way. So what they did was they brought another girl in for the cake decorating um, position. She worked up for a little bit, but when she had quit, they put me in her position. So why did it take her to quit for you to put me in her position? I was a target when I came back to Walmart. So after all this was said and done, I finally started getting more hours. I mean, I still went back to, 
doing freight and I mean they'll bring the freight out to me, but I still have to lift the boxes to get them off, you know, because they'll stack them so I still have to pull them off the, you know, the L uh the L court. So I still was doing lifting. I was on the floor on my knees and you know doing a lot of, you know, bending up and down. Then one day they put me in produce. Produce is extremely heavy. It was like they was just doing certain things just to see if I quit, basically. So, I mean, it was it was extremely hard until, you know, when I had the the uh, store manager come to me and she was tell like she would come to me and ask me how's everything going, things like that, and she wanted to know what happened. So I guess two ladies, which were the department manager and my manager in the bakery. Those two were the ones that told me I couldn't come back. I guess she didn't really get to talk to them, and they didn't show her the paper that I had bought in from the uh, that I had checked in from the doctor. She, I guess they didn't show it to her or whatever. She just heard about it. But she was like, oh, and then when I let her read it, they was, she was like, oh, I, I didn't know that, you know. I didn't know it was this way. I didn't know it was, you know, put in those words. And I was like, yeah, it's a state law not my doctor telling me this it's a state law my doctor's giving you this paper so you know it and she was like oh i didn't know that i'm like but you guys work for walmart in the state of illinois i'm just confused like why you guys did not get you know get the memo you guys do have women working for you guys i'm pretty sure women do get pregnant so what's you know how come you guys are not getting this information so how many hours were you working before they cut down your hours after they found out you were pregnant? Well, in the beginning, I was getting 40 hours a week. And that was before I found out I was pregnant and everything. And then, like, it started, like, when I, it started dying down after, you know, after a certain amount of time. They started cutting, cutting your hours so they don't have to pay you full time. Well, they don't have to give you the benefits and everything for full time. So they started cutting it down. But they cut it extremely down once I had came back. I was doing at least, like, when I was there and, I, you know, getting into July, it was like um, I say I was working 25, sometimes, you know, 35. You know, it depends on, you know, who was working and what shifts they were doing. But I was getting good hours before all this happened. They were telling you to show up and not giving you work, and meanwhile, they were also telling you that you couldn't work. She told me, when she told me that I couldn't, that since I had that restriction, she told me not to come to work because she was going to send me right back home. She said, if I see you here, I'm going to send you home. That's why I was like, okay, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm not going to. You know, come into work, I'm just going to call and see when I can come back. I'm, I wasn't going to waste my time driving to, to Granite City, and then they're going to turn around and tell me, you know, I can't work. It was pointless to drive up there, and then they're going to turn me around and tell me to leave. So I didn't I didn't come back. I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to keep calling personnel every day and see when I can come back to work because it's not a restriction against me. It's a restriction from the state, it's not like my doctor is telling me, you had did, you did damage on you, you did damage to yourself while you was at home. That's why you had this restriction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was nothing like this. Yeah. 
And you were saying this whole time you wanted, basically you wanted two things. You wanted to maintain your hours and you also wanted to be able to work in a different way so that you weren't putting yourself at risk. Correct. And they didn't give you either of those things. No, I just wanted to work and, you know, be able to support myself, but I didn't want to injure myself working. I didn't want to lose my baby working. And that was Walmart worker Latavia Johnson talking about what it was like to try to continue working while pregnant. And, you know, the thing that that these stories always make me think about is that, like, these workers are asking for so little, right? You're asking to be moved from one department to another where you won't have to lift, like she was talking about lifting frozen foods, right, that are heavier because they're frozen and they're dense. Um, you know, she's literally She was being... hired to decorate cakes, essentially. Right. And they're like, whoop, can't go to work today. I mean... Yeah, it's it's like, but they're asking for so little. And like, really, we should be asking for full paid family leave that allows people, if they need to, to take as much time off as they need. And like, this is this is such a tiny step in that direction. On the other hand, yeah, I mean, this is... This is a place where workers are having some wins and where even, you know, a few years ago, Michael Bloomberg didn't even oppose a a pregnant workers protection bill that would have done similar things to this Illinois law. Right. So it's it's such a yeah, I I have so many mixed feminist feelings about this whole issue. Right. In a way, you know, you, you might kind of bristle at it because it's sort of like, well, there are so many feminist issues and it's like, of course, everyone loves babies, right? So then we focus on this, right? <laughs> but it goes back to this tension that's always existed right. around feminism in the workplace, right? right? Which is how do you, uh, you know, without sort of, uh, you know, uh, succumbing to these old sort of maternalistic, you mm-hmm. know, sort of paternalistic ideals, yeah. right? How do you still advocate for right. adequate protection for women? Right, right. And, you know, there was not that long ago Rebecca Trace had that piece about, you know, in her case, being a, a, you know, rather well-known middle-class woman journalist and still facing all of these issues around being pregnant at work and, you know, her ability to do her job, which was sometimes impaired and sometimes not, and sometimes she was perfectly capable of doing her job. Um, And the way our, our policies really don't Well, I mean, it's no surprise to anybody who listens to this podcast that our policies around family leave and sick leave and, in general, workers' basic humanity have not kept up with the times or anything else. But, yeah, in this particular case, the anti-work person in me says that, no, we should be giving people as much time off as they need. And if they're sick and if they can't lift things and if they just want to stay home and, you know, watch TV while pregnant, then good. You should be able to do that. On the other hand, yeah, I mean, but if you want to stay at work. Right. And, you know, when we talk about this in terms of Walmart workers, there's almost no discussion of what actual family leave would mean. Yeah. Right? It's just Latavia was saying that, you know, if I don't work, I don't pay my rent. I don't yeah. pay my bills. I can't support the child that I'm going to have. And in a later part of the interview, which um, didn't make it into this clip, I mean, she talked about she took unpaid leave, right, after right. she had her baby. Right. And she wants to go back to work um, because she knows that she won't – but she she's worried that she won't be able to pay for child care if right. she goes to work. Right. So it's this terrible catch-22 where it's right. like you can leave your child at home and then have to pay, right. you know, an extra, you know, you know, couple weeks salary just right. to finance child care. Right. Or the alternative might be leave, leave them with a family member. But, you know, we've seen if so If you're many, lucky enough to have a family member. 
member that lives nearby that can do that. Exactly. You know? Or, you know, if you have to move back home and double up with your mom. because right. you're, I mean, right. so there are all these ways that outside of the workplace, right, these cycles of disadvantage kind of pile up on top mm-hmm. of each other, yeah. and it affects the entire family, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that is unwaged labor that, mm-hmm. that, the, uh, that, that her mom is performing maybe by watching the baby. Right. You know, so many ways that this impacts on women that are not even in the workforce. Right, and it really, it's, yeah, and so it just becomes this frustrating circle that we have to square somehow to say, like, yes, you should be able to have modified duty if your job is lifting heavy things that you should not be doing when you're pregnant. And at the same time, like, also, you should be able to stay home. Right. Exactly. And you should be able to take care of your child. Right. When they're, and, and if you want to go back to work, you should both be able to get light duty and also subsidize child care. But, I mean, now I'm really dreaming, right? We're in utopia <laughs> land I, You know what? We should be. Like, yes. we should be. And the thing is... Dude, we did it in World War II. Right? And we, we were making about- bombs. It was all good with the child care. Mm-hmm. And we talk about this a lot, Right. When you think about, and particularly these low-wage employers, right, they're, women are concentrated in these, these industries, right, in service work, in low-paid jobs, in care work, where they're, you know, often leaving a family member or a child at home that needs care in order to go care for somebody else. We see all of these issues, and they're becoming more prominent right now, right? We're talking about them. Obama is calling for family leave now a little you know, too late to have done anything about it. But, you know, we're seeing these issues have new prominence again, which I would credit to the fact that low-wage workers in general are in motion and making a lot of noise about their needs. I mean, Walmart itself um, changed its policy thanks to demands made by workers who are part of our Walmart. If only they enforce them, but yes, it's a whole other kettle of fish. Well, and that's another thing, right? As we talked about, um, I, I mentioned the Ellen Powell case earlier, and, you know, you talk to Latavia, who is saying, like, state law is supposed to protect me. Yeah. And what actually ended up protecting her was being part of an organization where there were people around to right. advise her on what her rights were yeah. and support her when she stood up for them. Right. And it all comes out, I mean, this uh, this notion of, uh, you know, flexibility, right? This mm-hmm. is what so many low-wage workers and, and just employers in general are pushing as right. sort of the way of the future. is like, oh, we can be flexible at work. But so often that's actually not what they mean by flexibility is just instability for right. workers, right? right? It's on-call hours. It's yeah. nev- erratic scheduling, right. right? What real flexibility would look like in a way that works for uh, you know the the women who are working right, right. would be to give them choice right? Right. right flexibility without choice just means your boss gets to decide your life exactly and like i mean uh, and when you're pregnant your boss gets to decide the life of your progeny as well right. and so and of course this a lot of it also then gets uh, compounded by these sort of cultural expectations that we have of women that they need to absorb you know right. the crap that's dumped on them right. because that is their maternal duty right? right and you see it on every level whether it's Walmart workers getting sidelined when they're you know they're they're perfectly willing to work or it's people being cut out of um, you know paid leave when they need it yeah. or um, you know we see in the care work industry like you mm-hmm. know you were saying domestic workers workers, uh, you know, are, are nannies for affluent households. Right. They have to send their child to maybe a substandard daycare, right. leave them with a relative, right? right? Why aren't they deserving of the kind of care that they provide to other women, right? Yeah. There's many multiple sort of layers of class hierarchy among women. Yeah, and I mean, I I feel like our conversation around this issue in particular right now is still being colored so much by the 90s, you know, 
quote, welfare reform, otherwise known as gutting welfare as we know it. We used to have an imperfect but an existing system that would help you if you were not the kind of person who is lucky enough to have an employer that gives you paid family leave. There was a system that gave you some options, and now there are far fewer options. And you are basically pushed into working at low-wage employers like Walmart, McDonald's, and you are meanwhile, you know, you're you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't in of terms course. of having children, right. right? That like culturally you are supposed to have a child, right? The same people who are opposing family leave policy are also opposing your right to have an abortion. It's this like you you are supposed to have a child and you are supposed to be a good parent and you're and being a good parent is still sort of coded as staying home and taking care of your child or paying somebody else to stay home and take care of your child. Right. And at the same time, if you're poor... But at the same time, right. You're if you're poor, right, then you're a terrible person if you're not working at these low-wage employers that benefit greatly from having a bunch of women shoved into a low-wage workforce. Um, right. And so, yeah, I, I really, you know, I, I'm glad that these issues are coming up. I'm glad we're talking about them. I'm glad that we're talking about them in terms of, you know, whether you should have you know, you should be able to stay at work if you, what you want is to stay at work. I just also want to, you know, be clear that when we're talking about, especially low-wage workers, they may not want to stay in work, but they can't afford any other option. Right. We are, society does not give them any And this dilemma, of course, is, I mean, it's as old as the hills, right, in in, Mm -hmm. in feminist debates, right? I mean, when white women were clamoring to join the workforce, black women were like, hey, we've always been here. And it's really not all that cracked up to be in some cases. So, I mean, you know, work can, and work is, of course, always a double-edged sword, right? Right. It can be tremendously empowering, right? And, and, And economic independence is obviously something that's worth striving for for every feminist, right? right? But if work is used as a cudgel to coerce and oppress people, right, it's no longer so empowering. Right. It just empowers someone else over you. Yeah. And that's um, all the more terrible when you are a woman because then it ends up being like, you know, your body, in addition to being a vehicle for labor, right. is also the vessel of the next generation. Right. And so you have a million different cultural expectations weighing on you. Right. And of course, you're expected to sort of absorb that quietly. I was just like, at this piece um, at Think Progress by friend of the show Bryce Covert about a police officer in New Jersey who was pushed out of her job when she became pregnant, relieved of patrol duty, put on administrative work, and then forced onto sick leave, even though the department gives other officers who have a temporary disability. And I, it's also a, a little weird. I want to acknowledge to talk about pregnancy as a disability. It, it is not a disability. It right. is... <laughs> you know, it's something that something happens to a lot of people. Um, it is a normal part of life, without yes. which not, life does not continue, at least until we create cyborg wombs. <laughs> but so, right, so when you have fields like the police, which for all of the problems with the police, right, it is a an incredibly male-dominated job that women had to fight for inclusion in, and then there these expectations are used to push you back out the minute that, you know, you're unable to meet some usually arbitrary boundary for, you know, physical capability. Right, exactly. Physical capability that we've associated with men. And, yeah, we, you know, and then on the other hand, these low-wage employers that have always been, I mean, Walmart, 
was built around the expectation of women's labor, usually married women's labor, because it was assumed that they didn't really need to get a living wage because they would have a husband around to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And the the whole culture of the company was all about mater- paternalism right. and kind of family, mm-hmm. you know, at least in the early days. And oh, yeah. Started getting oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, right, so we in, in either case, we see really, really gendered work both being shaped by the lives of the women who do it and also shaping their lives, right? Mm-hmm. If you are a police officer and you see what happens to this one person, are you going to get pregnant? Are you going to want to do that? Or are you going to see that as a choice between your job, which you might be very excited about, and your family? And on the other hand, you know... Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this whole, I mean, the, the whole question around, like, why can't women have it all? Of course, like, you know, we all, the, right. after a while, we're just like, oh, God, shut up. But I mean, the, the reason that the question originated out of a very real anxiety that women of all, you know, income levels are probably right. plagued with, which is like, there are these multiple sets of contradictory expectations right. that society places on you. Right. And if you're facing pressure to work and to not work, right? To be a mom right. and to be independent, right? right? Or to be, uh, you know, to be uh, loving and to be tough, right? Right. I mean, so there are these, and uh, right. to be a mom and to be a cop, right? And, and of course, <laughs> when you express that anxiety, people are like, "Oh, she's just being hysterical," and right. like you know, right. so lady feelings, right? Yeah, yeah. And so when we talk about this, we have to be aware of all of these multiple layers that are always moving. But the, the you know the short version of like why can't women have it all is like why are we only asking this question of women? Right. Why are we only asking these questions of women? Right. And so and maybe women can't have it all because men are taking a lot of because because men have it all yeah and, and you know and and the idea I, I'm actually I was I was uh, looking back at uh, some of the old um, coverage of the nation they actually were discussing wages for housework oh, back yeah. in the 1920s and it was like a very progressive idea back then and of course like part of it is about like home economics and the woman is the manager of the household right. it was a very maternalistic kind of idea but on the other hand you know. What about employing men in the household, right? Paying right. them wages to stay home and cook and clean, right? Right. right. And, and so if yeah. we if we rethought care work in in that way, then right. we would get away from this kind of dehumanizing discourse around like women simply being either wage earners or breeders or right. whatever. Right. And this, you know, this idea that like you cannot be both, yeah. but also that, you know, we devalue the work that it is that it takes to, you know, the the reproductive labor, right? We we devalue the work, and there's you know um, very real reasons why we why they call it labor when you're when you're giving birth. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean this this one little issue here that it appears to just be a fairly simple thing to ask of your boss to like, yo, can I have a chair behind the register since I'm pregnant and I shouldn't be standing for eight hours? Really opens up a huge well of issues that we certainly have not been able to solve in 15 yes, minutes. Yes. But, you know, yes. we'll keep trying. Right. And and just as a side note, um, if you want to read more about this, uh, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act is another uh, thing that people are pushing as well now to sort of build on the, um, the Supreme Court decision because it would offer additional protections and it would clarify some of the standards um, that employers would have to adhere to in terms of uh, evaluating whether or not pregnant women qualify for certain accommodations at work. So Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and uh, check out what's going on in your state and make sure that your boss is following the rules if you are expecting. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. 
Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that, where we bring you our picks for pieces that we've read recently that we wish we had written but did not. So my pick for the week is called After a Story is Published, a Minimum Wage Worker Loses Her Job, and it's by Chico Harlan at the Washington Post. Now, okay, there are a few things that are more undignified than working yourself to the bone and still not earning enough to survive on, but then getting fired for speaking up about it is a whole other kettle of fish, and that's exactly what happened to worker named Tippin that Chico Harlan wrote about recently. She's uh, in Arkansas and is uh, set to get a quarter an hour raise thanks to Arkansas's uh, new measure to raise the minimum wage on the state level. And uh, after she talked about, um, you know, after she talked to the Post about how hard it is for her to make ends meet on a mere seven fifty an hour working at a day's in, um, and Chico Harlan ran this piece that was kind of looking at the day-to-day hardships she had to deal with, she ended up being fired. And uh, Tippin went back to uh, Chico Harlan and basically said that the hotel manager, Harry Patel, had uh, called the post to express his frustration, that he had been misquoted, supposedly. And then he found her in the lobby and fired her. And she quotes him as saying, he said, I was stupid and dumb for talking to the post. He cussed me and asked me why you wrote the article. I said, because he's a reporter. That's what he does. He said, it was wrong for me to talk to you. And like that, she was fired. So I thought it was interesting that he gave this kind of personal insight into it, and he actually inserted himself into the narrative in some ways, and I thought it raised interesting questions, uh, not only about the plight of low-wage workers, but the role of the media when speaking to uh, people who are in these really precarious situations, and, and what is your role as a confidant of this person? Uh, have you built a rapport with the with the subjects that you're reporting on, and and what kind of trust is there? And and you can see from this uh, from this article that, that Tippin, I mean, I don't think, you know, she doesn't seem to be angry at Chico Harlan in any way and and I don't really think that you know you can you can blame this on the reporters she was unfairly fired by her boss that's her it's her boss's fault but um it kind of raises these interesting questions about the sacrifices that workers take just in speaking out and I was thinking about all this um talk in Washington of whistleblower protections right Right. various national security leaks and all that stuff but you know are you a whistleblower when you're a low-wage worker and you speak out about how hard it is being poor in this country I mean in a way I think that's what Tippin was doing you know whistleblowers of capitalism exactly and uh, and of course, there are no protections for workers. In fact, just the opposite. Speaking out is going to make you extremely vulnerable. And even if you have, she probably thought that she might get bolstered a little bit in her case by speaking out to the media because she had a sympathetic story and, you know, millions of Post readers would be reading about it. But no, like that, she was fired. And of course, you know, the Post isn't really in a position to save her job. They might run this piece and maybe Harry Patel will feel bad and hire her back. But of course, you know, her life has just been set back temporarily by by this entire ordeal. And it, it also led me to think, you know, the first thing the boss did was impugn the integrity of the worker, right? Mm-hmm. Called the post, said he was misquoted, right? Says this woman is untrustworthy. Completely, one, sort of uh, degrading the role of the reporter in all this in terms of, you know, doing his own research and vetting his sources. And also, of course, you know, unfairly denigrating his own employee. You know, of course, if she was really that untrustworthy, why'd he hire her, right? But, um, and, but the thing is... Uh, 
he also rather perniciously um, uh, then conflated Tippin's uh, narrative about um, you know her dealings with a reporter um, with the fact that she actually did have a criminal conviction on her record, and it, it just seemed to be you know just so insidious the way the boss kind of uh, you know tried to sort of indirectly criminalize her, right, by saying, well, she has a past criminal conviction, and that's why she deserved to get fired. And it, it raised all these questions about n- not only, you know, the, the, the difficulty low-wage workers have speaking up, but how difficult it is for them to be activists on behalf of other low-wage workers. Because she clearly wasn't in it for any personal gain when she spoke out about her story, right? Um, she wasn't even really retaliating against her bad boss, right? She was just saying, um, this is what we go through every day, right? And and there's nothing there for her, you know, not even been indication in the media, except maybe when the Washington Post article, uh, you know, the Washington Post is a follow up on you. And I guess that's an ongoing saga. But in the meantime, the reporter moves on. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really it's a thing we should think about more often, right? Because, you know, we have this responsibility to, to the people who we are reporting on and they are, you know, taking a much bigger risk and we are getting the gain for it, whether or not that gain is financial or not (laughs) which sometimes it's not but yeah um so now i'm going to try to cheer you up my arg for this week is this lovely piece by friend of the podcast former guest dave zyron for the nation magazine 150th anniversary issue and it is called a world of sports worth fighting for and those of you who are listeners to this podcast and readers of my work know I'm I'm a little bit obsessed with sports labor. I'm a little bit obsessed with the idea of the work that we do for the love of it and how that is made impossible in a world of capitalist wage labor relations. And so Dave's piece begins, I love sports, but I hate so much of what sports has become. He's calling for sports to be you know, extracted from the profit motive, from children's sports, right, that have been professionalized. And we saw this with the Little League Championship being taken away from young children who had won it because of some supposed rule violation, a college sports system without the NCAA. He writes, no more would we hear from a multi-billion dollar cartel policing a system of indentured servitude. That's blunt, but true. The fact that the NCAA's two revenue-producing sports happen to revolve around the talents of young black men speaks volumes. Stop the theft of black wealth through college sports and instead treat players like the campus employees they are. And then goes on to imagine an end to all sports cartels. It just gets better. And I think the real reason why I'm obsessed with this is, is like Dave, I am a sports fan. I love watching sports. I feel awful that I am participating in a system that is incredibly exploitative and incredibly physically damaging and sort of in denial about the effects that it has on its workers' bodies. It's really easy for people to say that these are really well-paid workers and they, they, you know, they are, you know, in some cases well beyond the labor aristocracy, right? They're the uh, aristocracy of the labor aristocracy. But Still, we're looking at multi-billion dollar industries, multi-billionaire owners. Just the fact that they're called owners should really give us some pause. And yeah, sports could be something better. They could be a place where we enjoy competition in a way that is not live or die the way it is in the workplace rat race. And 
yeah, I, I think every now and then I like to bring you guys something hopeful and forward-looking and a little bit of an uplifting end to a fairly depressing show today. I encourage you to read it. I always encourage you to read Dave. You should also read my friend Travis Waldron, who's another excellent progressive sports reporter. I think that it's a wonderful thing that we actually have people who have made this a beat. And that yeah. does it for Belabored number 74. Please tweet at us at hashtag Belabored. Let us know if you are a pregnant worker who's getting a hard time from your boss, if you are a professional athlete who has some opinions about pro sports. If you are a pregnant professional athlete. If, we'd like if you are a pregnant professional well. athlete, we would really love to hear from you. And any questions, suggestions, future ideas, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org, and we will be back in two weeks. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org and join us online using hashtag belabored. Has it been